2: It's time to let it roll—the podcast about how and why popular music happens—with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Peter Doggett for the second of two episodes discussing his book *Electric Shock: Recorded Music from the Gramophone to the iPhone*. In this episode, Peter continues the tale of the first format wars with radio's sudden mass-market emergence in the 1920s, and discusses three of the early superstars of recorded music, Enrico Caruso, Burt Williams, and Al Jolson. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time
0: to
1: let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're surveying musical history. Our guest, Peter Doggett, has returned generously to once again to continue the discussion of his book, Electric Shock. We barely got through the introduction in the first chapter in the first time, so I'm hoping that uh, this episode won't be the last time we get Peter, but he hasn't committed yet. So, Peter, welcome back to the show, and I hope I can count on you for many more episodes. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm sure we can do another 10, 12, maybe, something like that.
1: Awesome, awesome. Glad no, no, Not putting you on the spot at all, but happy to have done it. So, we've been talking about your book which is a history. This is a very ambitious undertaking. Electric Shock: From the Gramophone to the iPhone, 125 Years of Pop Music. It came out a few years ago and I'd argue that it's already a little bit out of date, but because because by ending with the iPhone, you're ending with the MP3 era and we're already into a new era of streaming. How what would you have changed if you had written the book just a couple, like this year instead of three or four years ago?
0: Oh, goodness me. Well, I, 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 I did incorporate streaming. Um, I'm not sure, certainly in musical terms, I'm not sure how much has changed. Um, and I have to confess that I, I have pretty much switched my attention off since I finished <laughs> writing the book because it, the, the, book, the book took me four years of research when I was gathering everything from everywhere. And suddenly I didn't have to do that anymore. So I'm just an ordinary person wandering through the world. So I haven't um, applied quite the the, the same focus to it since I finished writing it.
1: Well, you'll have to become a subscriber to The Letter Old Podcast and listen to me when I find the guests who have. Because I really don't feel like there's been a great history of 21st century or even a good history of 21st century music written yet. And so if we find that person, uh, I, I'll insist on personally sending you the episode so that you can learn along with us. But I yeah, want to start start with this. Um, you talk about uh, Claude Debussy, the great um, French Impressionist composer. And he uh, was reflecting on the strangeness of this transformation that occurred after the invention of recorded music. And he said, quote, In a time like ours, when the genius of engineers has reached such undreamed of proportions, one can hear famous pieces of music as easily as one can buy a glass of beer. It only costs 10 centimes, too, just like the automatic weighing scale. Should we not fear this domestication of sound, this magic preserved in a disc that anyone can awaken at will? I mean, is he right or is he right?
0: He, he's right. And I just for a second while you were reading that, I was trying to imagine living in a world where we didn't have access to recordings, we didn't have access to anything that preserved the past at all. So that, that let me try and imagine it, each, each day's internet dissolved. Uh, 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 as soon as you reached midnight, everything had gone and you started afresh the next day. So you lived only in the moment. And What a weird world that would be. But um, I guess in musical terms, that that, that is the way people lived um, until music was invented. Now, did that destroy the magic of music? No, I, I'd argue that it just preserved it um, and enabled more people to experience it.
1: But wouldn't you argue that it cost a lot of musicians their jobs? Like, I've had this argument with many critics, and, it, you know, we saw at the end of the CD era and the beginning of the MP3 era a big loss in revenue to the music industry. And a lot of musicians were saying, oh, my God, this is the end of an era. We, you know, people won't be able to afford to make music for as a living again. This is the end of the world. But... You look back and you read accounts of histories of music before recorded music, and there would literally be a second rush hour in some big cities at the end of the day when the musicians went out to go to work so that people would come home on the electric trolleys at 5 p.m. and 6 or 6.30, another wave of workers is headed out with their cello cases and their banjos and guitars. I mean, wouldn't you argue that that was sort of an apocalypse to the music industry of its time?
0: Um, it was, but in, in in lots of ways, history, changes in technology, life is is an eternal apocalypse. I mean, um, and the apocalypses are coming faster and faster. The older we all get now, um, because of the way in 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 which technology has speeded everything up, speeded our lives up, speeded change up. Um, so I'm I'm I, I I understand the point you're making. Um, what was it Neil Young sang about on one of his songs about 1980 um, live music is better bumper stickers will be issued Um, and I take it I take Neil Young's point but Neil Young did very nicely out of royalties for records and songs along the way of course Um, I've already mentioned Neil Young one of the people whose tweets I look at regularly is Neil Young's ex-comrade Mr. David Crosby and he is perpetually First of all, he's perpetually on the road. He's 77 years old and he's got many illnesses and he'd much rather be at home with his family. But he says he used to have an income from selling records that's gone. So the only way he can make music now is almost back to the 19th century, is to go back on the road and charge people to come and see him perform in the moment. So in a weird way, we've almost gone full circle there.
1: Absolutely. And another thing where reading your book brings back current memories today is you talk about format wars that literally go back to the very beginning of recorded sound where, where Thomas Edison uh, and Alexander Graham Bell and others are competing to create, um, the perfect musical format, I believe it was Emil Berliner's gramophone that competed with Thomas Edison's phonograph. This is like the first version of Betamax versus VHS or for contemporary users, you know, Spotify versus SoundCloud. Can you give us some of the handicap of the battle between Edison's phonograph and Berliner's gramophone?
0: Um, goodness me, that's a big a big technical subject without getting too, too technical. Well, one of the major problems with the cylinder recording um, of... which I And that was Edison's. That yeah. was Edison. Was, but at the time that technology was invented, there was no way of reproducing it. So that if a performer wanted to sell um, 5,000 cylinders of a, of a particular performance, they had to record, they had to make 5,000 individual recordings so that everybody had a slightly different recording. Whereas with Emil Berliner's um, record what becomes gramophone. You know, the, the, the gramophone yeah. record. Um, very early on, they discovered ways in which they they could be reproduced, they could be copied. So immediately, that that technology had a huge commercial advantage over the cylinder. Even though the cylinder arguably gave much, much better sound quality, and also if you had a cylinder recording machine in your home, you could make your own recordings, which obviously you couldn't if you if you owned the gramophone.
1: And, and there's two artists that sort of, to me, epitomize that difference. One is Enrico Caruso, the great classical or operatic singer. And he, I believe, recorded, uh, he was guaranteed an annual income of $100,000 by his death in 1921. And that was from doing sessions on the gramophone where he sang it once and it's mass produced, Correct.
0: That's right. Yeah. And um, so
1: Caruso, go ahead and talk tell us about Enrico Caruso because this is another area where it's just not something I thought about, but classical music was actually a dominant form of popular music at the beginning of the 20th century.
0: It, exactly, which which I have to say was a a huge surprise to me. I mean, I I I, I knew in theory about the idea that there was the, the there was this operatic operatic tenor called Enrico Caruso. was very popular what i didn't think about was that he was competing for sales in the earliest years of the the recorded sound industry with the, the things we were talking about in the previous episode coon songs minstrel songs novelty tunes um and that there were there wasn't the same divide at least as far as his music was concerned between classical and popular where very much um, really for the last 60, 70, 80 years, you either loved classical music or you loved popular music. With Caruso, the two became the same thing. And so he sold million upon million of operatic arias, um, two minutes, three minutes, at most four minutes long, as the most piercing beauty. I mean, his voice still, if, if you if you hear those recordings that he made now between, uh, what was it, 1904 and 1920, you you can, through, all, through the appalling sound quality and the crackles and the hiss and whatever, you can still hear what a majestic, um, emotionally overwhelming voice he had. So it's easy to understand why people would get the same pleasure out of hearing his records that they would, I don't know, 50, 60 years later in hearing Otis Redding or Aretha Franklin.
1: Absolutely, and there's... Two points I'd want to add to that. One is that even though what he recorded was operatic areas, and as I've discussed with previous guest uh, author Elijah Wald, um, performers like Robert Johnson, who are known today as blues performers, were actually more like human jukeboxes, where Robert Johnson would not only play... Um, blues songs, but he or his contemporary Muddy Waters, Muddy Waters had a whole set of Gene Autry songs and cowboy songs that he sang so somebody like Caruso would not only be singing, if you saw him live in 1904 not only be singing operatic areas but he might be singing the latest pop songs by Irving Berlin Patriotic Standards The Star-Spangled Banner, etc. etc.
0: That's true. Uh, uh, Although although in Caruso's case, he he almost entirely recorded operatic material. Uh, There were a few sort of almost classical songs, like I mentioned in the book, The Lost Chord by Arthur Sullivan, which, I mean, if if you're ever going to play one record by Caruso, The Lost Chord is just the most mind-blowing thing to hear. Um, Point
1: taken... And we're going to pause here and i'm going to try to challenge steph to track that song down and play it right here and
0: my fear-
1: And now that we've heard that and given people a taste of Enrico Caruso, and you can't say that the Let It Roll podcast doesn't elevate your culture. So thanks for helping us with that, Peter. But I want to go over something we mentioned briefly in the first episode that you did with us. This was this Charles K. Harris's uh, book, How to Write a Popular Song from 1906, where he ran through about 12 or 13 categories. And we talked about four of them in the last episode, but I want to run through all of them to give people an idea of what was what were considered musical genres at the turn of the 20th centuries. So he had a, the home or mother song, B the descriptive or sensational story ballad, C the popular waltz song, which could be on a thousand and one subjects D the, the Racist Coon song, which we discussed at length, and if, if you're concerned about the racism of that, see the previous episode. E, the March song, so Patriotic War song. This is where John Philip Sousa and and uh, uh, well, Stars and Stripes Forever would come in. Then you had the comic song, so somebody like Eddie Cantor or something like that. Um, the production song, which would be com- coming out of of a Broadway play or something like that. The popular love ballad high-class ballad, and sacred songs. So looking at that sort of catalog of genres in 1906 and knowing what you know, Peter, about the history of 20, 20th century music, I mean, compare and contrast that with the genres we had, say, towards the end of the 20th centuries, where you had rock, you had hip-hop, you had jazz, soul, etc. How many of these sort of niches are eternal, and how many of them were sort of unique to their period in time?
0: Well, if if, if you pick the very first one you mentioned, which was the home or mother song, you now there's a whole a whole tradition of people writing the most mawkishly sentimental songs about about their mothers. Uh, I mean, Al Jolson recorded several of them, and the, but there's an element of that which which carried right on through country music. I mean, if you think of something like. Old Shep that Elvis Presley did, for example, in 1956. Um, it's not about his mom, it's about his dog, isn't it? But yeah. um, but it's, it comes from that same tradition. He also
1: shoots Old Shep at the end of the song, so hopefully not one that people do with their mother. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I get that. The sentimental ballad has remained, so go on.
0: Yeah. Um, the sensational story ballad. Well, that... Might in 1890 have have been an account an account of the Napoleonic Wars or a particularly famous battle in the Civil War or the War for uh, War of Independence, um, but I guess if you look at something like Bob Dylan's Hurricane or um, I don't know something something like that that would tell a, a real life story. I would an think element.
1: of, of uh, NWA's uh, Straight out of Compton as a Gen X contemporary example where they're sort of pre-telling the story of the LA riots.
0: Yeah. And it's cer- certainly qualifies as descriptive and it's, uh, it was sure as hell sensational as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, definitely the, the Waltz song. I mean, that's just
1: EDM. That's electronic dance music. That's just the dance song.
0: What's yeah, the beat? Might, might not have the same rhythm as the popular Waltz song, but yes. or I mean, it seems to me almost every record is a dance record these days, whether, whether that's, how it's classified or not based which I have to say is one of the themes of the whole the whole of electric shock was that ultimately when it came down to almost every new development in popular music and I say almost was, was triggered by the, the joy of dancing, the freedom of movement and the, um, the sort of feeling of liberation that music can give you.
1: And, and yeah, and we'll get to Ragtime in a minute, which is like, the I think, the first example you bring up where African-American music brings a new syncopated beat into the world of popular music. But I want to touch on just a couple of these because obviously the popular love ballad is still very much with us and, and we can't escape it from these shows, the Simon Cowell-type shows. Um, and then uh, Sacred Songs, still with us, although not a. Well, actually, with Christian rock and others becoming this really viable music genre, we still have that. Uh, and then something like high-class ballads, um, I might blame that category on something like Coldplay, which perhaps snobs like ourselves don't necessarily think of as high-class, but they're fulfilling a certain niche for people who like to hear music and think and take themselves somewhat seriously while they listen to it.
0: Yeah, and in and the 1970s, the equivalent of that, would would have been progressive rock because I mean I remember myself being a a school schoolboy at the time that um, if you listened to I don't know Genesis or whatever you felt you were a cut above and you're therefore more intelligent than people who were listening to Deep Purple now from this distance what a stupid idea but at the time <laughs> that 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 distinction was very important it was part of one's identity
1: yeah very much so and and so. And we still obviously have comic songs. One one category that we haven't seen recently, and I hope we don't see a great deal of again, is the March song, which I think has an ominous, to me, an ominous character. I mean, it's one thing to hear Stars and Stripes Forever, the great John Philip Sousa march. It's another thing to hear, you know, uh, over there. Um written by Yankee Doodle Dandy. I can't remember the guy's name, but, you know, a World War One ballad. It's another thing entirely to hear uh, one of the Nazi battle songs, uh, the Horst Foscher song or something like that. And so I get sort of the chills when I think of what might be being sung in the border of Russia and Ukraine right now or somewhere in Syria amongst, you know, I somewhere, you know, like in Nigeria where... Islamic jihadis are fighting with local tribal groups. And so that is a category I, at least, am not currently aware of being popular, but
0: does put a chill down my spine. But go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to upset some people by saying this, and I can't remember the song titles, but I was going to say Toby Keith. um, And actually one of my—
1: Perfect, perfect, perfect example.
0: Yep. And and also one of my favorite singers, although— I don't think he and I would survive a discussion about politics. Which is Hank Williams Jr. I mean, what a fantastic voice! What a great singer! What an amazing musician! Um, and an awful lot of his music is basically, um, from from my perspective, spewing Gegoistic. out ultra ultra conservative um, you know agenda, which I find distasteful politically, but musically I can I can listen to. But he yeah. wants to, he wants to arouse people in the same way that your current president does. He wants to get people up on their feet and shouting and...
1: And maybe shooting. I mean, somebody like Ted Nugent is somebody who's made this transformation from being seen on the, at least being perceived on the cultural avant-garde at the time when he was playing on the same stages with MC5 and Iggy and the Stooges, to now being on the same stages with Sarah Palin and Donald Trump, and saying things that, many scholars identify as hate speech or eliminationist rhetoric, like literally the sort of shit you heard coming out of Serbia in the late 1980s or coming out of Rwanda uh, before the genocide there. And hopefully, obviously uh, we all hope America isn't reaching that point, but it's very disturbing to hear that kind of shit being spewed all over the media.
0: And and it also brings up the absolutely classic dilemma, which, which, um, People always talk about in terms of, um, of writers like, like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, whose work was openly an anti-Semitic. It had very um, harsh caricatures of Jews, or indeed, in Pound's case, out, outright, outright hate hatred of, of Jewish people. Um, is it therefore okay to enjoy Pound's poetry? Is it okay to still read The Wasteland? And this is something that, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Jerry Lee Lewis, for example. But if you catch some of his asides when you see him perform or indeed on some of his records, he goes against everything politically and culturally that I I believe in. I've mentioned Hank Jr., exactly the same. I love the music. Is it okay to love that music when it expresses things that I find absolutely abhorrent? I don't know. And and then and if you get into Jerry Lee's case,
1: you know, as a Gen Xer, one of my first exposures to Jerry Lee was reading a Rolling Stone magazine expose that, at least to my 14-year-old mind at the time, I'd have to revisit it before I put myself in a position of being legally challenged by Jerry Lee or his estate. But at the time it made a credible case that perhaps Jerry Lee the death of one of Jerry Lee's wives under very suspicious circumstances, might have involved spousal abuse and domestic violence to the point of death. And so when you're talking about somebody like Jerry Lee, who not only did that, but verifiably bigamously married his underage cousin, you know, or you get into somebody like Ike Turner, who for all he contributed as a musician, I mean, arguably ike turner with rocket 88 is one of the inventors of rock and roll and and his accomplishment in training and cultivating and developing the talent of tina turner i think is unquestionably one of the great gifts anybody made to 20th century music and yet do you want to support this artist
0: yeah and and, and this this is something that we each individually have to face particularly i mean the um, I think it's happened much less in the States than it has in England, but there have been a whole raft of cases in the last 10, 15 years in England where much-loved much, lo- much loved entertainers, celebrities, disc jockeys have been exposed as as child abusers, and in many cases convicted and sent to prison. And, um, and, and so, obviously and,
1: you're referring to Gary Glitter uh, and the late uh, uh, Jimmy Saville, is that how you pronounce his last name?
0: Jimmy Saville. and, and, Saville, and and also the children's entertainer Rolf Harris, um, who you may not know. I don't, you might have heard of him, but not familiar. Yeah, I think he had one hit single in America. But everybody loved Rolf Harris, he was um, just part of one's childhood. He was still, I saw him performing at a folk festival three or four years ago. And then you discover all these tales about what he was doing when he had the opportunity in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and... Incidents of uh, of assault or indecent assault or whatever for which he has gone to prison, and And suddenly a whole whole part of your childhood is wiped out. So, is it still okay to have fond memories of seeing him on television when you were six, knowing what he's what he was actually up to at the time? It's a endless dilemma for people these days. I think. Yeah,
1: and 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 to bring it home to Americans of my generation, he's not a musician, but he was certainly a recording artist. Uh, Bill Cosby, who just a few years ago I would have introduced as the great Bill Cosby without even thinking about it because of his contributions to stand-up comedy. I mean, here's a man that everyone from Richard Pyre to Johnny Carson to George Carlin uh, to Chris Rock, I mean, anybody in comedy acknowledges what this man brought to the craft. And for me as a child growing up on his storytelling records about childhood, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I had kids kind of late. and. One of the joys of having children is sharing things like The Beatles or movies that you love. I just had the pleasure this weekend, holiday weekend, of sharing The Sound of Music with my son and daughter and the Western movie Shane with my son and daughter. And they both were able to appreciate it. You know, they're 10 and 5, so they're appreciating different things about these movies. But that's one of the great joys of parenthood and and cultural cultivation in a small scale. And here we have artists... Like bill cosby or jerry lee do i Would i want to play my favorite bill cosby records for my kids part of me is like of course i would and part of me of is like i do not want to open this can of worms anywhere near my children
0: exactly and i guess in a way with with someone like cosby or with ike turner it's easier because they are one individual but i mean you mentioned the sound of music i have no idea but it's quite possible that there is somebody who contributes to the sound of music um, you know, a producer or a writer or an actor or any of these films. Or it's was possible. The,
1: all the nuns that were involved, uh, you know, at least, you know, if there were any priests advising, just knowing what we know now about the Catholic Church, of course there would have been a child molester somewhere in the picture. Yeah. You know? and, uh, and I've got one last one I want to bring up. This is well off topic, but while I've got you. When Seville was exposed and I'm, am I am I still pronouncing that wrong? Is that you're still pronouncing it wrong? Savile, Savile, Savile. Forgive my uh, Americanism and Texasism. Um, but what Savile was a beloved, popular figure. I believe he was knighted and was a huge charity uh, giver. He was not exposed until after his death. Like the media was, he had so much power, people couldn't even go after him until after he was dead. Sort of like I imagine what may or may not happen to R. Kelly someday. But I have hope that R. Kelly will face justice sooner than that. But then you've got somebody like Gary Glitter, who had already been caught first on the Internet and then traveling to Vietnam. I mean, obviously, this man has a deep sickness of pedophilia. But but after Seville Seville was exposed, there was a series of news articles about how other celebrities from his era might be prosecuted and at first i'm thinking wow is jimmy page and mick jagger they having sleepy sleepless nights right now what's sir elton john thinking about right now because certainly the moray in the early 70s age of consent was not a factor you know i mean that was just from my at least readings of of the period sleeping with you know for a for a 20 year old or 18 year old male performer to have sex with a 12 or 13 year old female fan was thought of as nothing, you know. Whereas currently we've got uh, I can't pronounce the kid's name, but 69 or something that was is currently under prosecution for being videotaped having sex as an 18 year old with a 13 year old girl, so the standards have changed completely. But I thought, oh wow, are we going to see somebody big go down, you know? Maybe like remember when Pete Townsend had his. A uh, uh, brief period where he's accused of looking at pedophilia on the internet, and instead they just charged Gary Glitter with yet another case of child rape. I mean, did you feel like that the big stars with big money were getting off the hook in that episode?
0: Uh, not mentioning any names. Yes, I did. Um...
1: <laughs> Wiser than me. Wiser than me. <laughs> obviously, all these things are just alleged, but they're very well documented.
0: Well, yes, and and but but you also make the very good point that. Um, Let's, we won't put any names up But let's suppose there's a world-beating 1960s band Who toured the world in the 60s And they have got girls, 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 girls Queuing up outside their dressing rooms, hotel rooms Backstage at cinemas or whatever um, Stadia, you know, anywhere they're playing And basically these girls want, want to get close to the group That's all they're interested in doing. Now, now, whether the girls actually realise what that might entail, one doesn't know. But an awful lot of them basically want to get naked with with the group. Now, the group are on tour. They're not thinking about, OK, well, we better make sure. Have they got passports? Have they got birth certificates? You know, they're just going, oh, uh, she's cute. OK, I'll have her and I'll have her. They can't remember, no doubt, the next day who they had sex with and who they didn't. Lots of these kids must have had babies. I mean, in the 1960s, 50s, um, lots of the young girls must have had babies. I mean, we know
1: from, and to name somebody we can name since he's dead, we know from the biography of Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones alone that here's a guy by the time he was 23 had, what, six, seven illegitimate children? And that was before he was even a rock star.
0: Exactly, yeah. So you think how many other children there must be. Um, And... So, looking at it from our perspective today, you can say, well, it was immoral of those pop stars to take advantage of their fame like that. But against that, they they have been catapulted from meaning nothing in the world to being the most famous people in the world overnight. And that screws with your head. And so you do stuff which morally, looking back 50 years later, you go, oh, actually, I wish I hadn't done that. But... At the time it's like pleasure great go for it you know they these are young guys they're just going to go for whatever they want so i'm not excusing them but i'm just saying that it was so much part of the culture there was nobody supervising the kids there was nobody supervising the musicians the entertainers it was going to happen um but yes i my my gut feeling is that if they started at A in the alphabet of popular entertainment entertainers from the 60s and 70s, and said, "Okay, John Aardvark, the famous rock and roll star, is going to be arrested because he had sex with a 14-year-old groupie." Well, they're going to have to work their way all the way through to Z, and you know, Frank Zappa and Beyond, and basically prosecute every musician who's ever gone on tour. Because um, I apologise to any musicians out there who've never done that kind of thing, but an awful lot did.
1: Yeah, and then it brings to mind the, the old saying, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And so somebody who had the kind of fame and power, like somebody like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones had in the 60s, which was thrust upon them with no preparation. These were not like nobles who were raised with a sense of noblesse oblige and social responsibility. These were just kids who stumbled into this. Wealth and fame and musical power, um, but we've 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 wandered way far from the topic. <laughs> I wanted, but it's we been have. fascinating. That, but I wanted to compare another performer with Enrico Caruso that we talked about. Caruso, obviously, the great operatic singer who uh, was on one side of the format wars. He was using a gramophone, so he could record a performance once, and they could duplicate it. Now, a different performer. Who was almost as popular but is completely forgotten now. I, I certainly had never heard of him, although now you can look him up on YouTube. Um, you describe him as a former slave, George Washington Johnson, billed himself, this is what he billed himself as, the original whistling coon and laughing darky. And this guy inaugurated a long tradition of what you call laughing records with his 1890, 1891 recording of the laughing song. And basically... Uh, this is a sound of this man laughing in a very entertaining way. I mean, it's still a, a, music, a record that I played for my child and, and delighted her. You know, she knew nothing of the context, but something in in a George, was- George Washington Johnson's performance communicated across the centuries. But this guy, because he was recording for the Edison phonograph on a cylinder, he had to record he had to repeat that performance an estimated 40,000 times so that a fresh cylinder could be made from each rendition. And each one of these is viciously self-mocking with its casual references to a, quote, Huckleberry inward and, quote, a big baboon. Now, the contrast between the way Enrico Caruso is treated and the way that George Washington Johnson is treated, you could not get a better capsule description of the racial inequality of the early part of the 20th century. And I want to
0: thank you for sharing that. Okay. Well, yes, it's, it's, it's true. And it's very sad. And, and
1: yeah, would you agree with me that, that if you hear George Washington Johnson's work, something valuable comes through?
0: Sure. Definitely. Yes. Um, and well, that's all. We're almost back to where we were five, 10, 15 minutes ago talking about Joe Lewis or whatever. Because is it okay to take pleasure from that at this point? I mean, this was a guy who was making a living the best way he knew how. And if the, if the only way he could make a living was to make fun of his own race, then at least he could eat. Um, and who are we now to say, well, he shouldn't have done it?
1: Absolutely. And to me, there's a big difference. You have to take in intent. And what was the artist's goal here? And I believe that George Washington Johnson, I have to assume, was just as human as you or I and had the same sort of blind drive that a salmon has swimming upstream trying to reproduce itself. He knew he had a musical gift and he was seeking immortality.
0: Exactly. Yes. And 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 he wasn't. He wasn't setting out with the political purpose of doing down his own race. He was merely trying to survive. Um, And as a polar opposite of that, um, I remember being amazed when I wrote a book about uh, the history of the interaction between country music and rock music, which was called Are You Ready for the Country? A great Um, book, by the way. I'm hoping to get back on to talk about that sometime too. (laughs) Um, Well, I came came across a whole strand of... um, Music that I'm sad to say came from the southern United States of rockabilly singles that were being that were outwardly racist that were intended for dissemination amongst the KKK or whatever. Um, and they, they included things like N, N-word hating me. And the awful thing is it's a great it's a great record to hear it. It's, it's a really catchy country artists, rock record.
1: Yeah. And I'm not even and, and I'm having mixed emotions about Part of me wants to be the ten-year-old Nathan and say, "Oh, I know the answer! I know the answer!" And part of me doesn't really want to tell people where to find that song, um, yeah. because, like you say, it is a very powerful song. And unfortunately, we're in an era where, once again, Nazis are on the march, both in the U.S., across Europe, through Brazil, uh, all the way, uh, you know, uh, into Russia, all the way east into China. We're having these racial spats. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name check it, nor am I gonna name check say. Uh, a particular 80s hardcore uh, band that became the flagship of the Nazi skinhead movement in the 80s. And yet, at least their first album is really powerful music. So, yeah, it's this continual thing. And that's one of the great things about Electroshock is it really reminds one that nothing new is under the sun, that we're seeing these same stories, these same fights. And it's sort of like a matter to me of Pick your role models and who are you going to try to emulate, keeping in mind that the situations have changed and, and you could end up making the Christopher Hitchens mistake to get well out of field where Hitchens admired George Orwell and used that as a moral compass and, and then finds himself at the end of his life supporting G.W. Bush and Tony Blair's illegal invasion of Iraq. So, uh, again, forgive the aside, but I want to talk about another figure that from the perspective of 2018, is gonna seem controversial. I mean, I can imagine some of my, especially younger African-American friends, they hear about Burt Williams, um, who billed himself as the famous chocolate-covered coon. Um, No, wait, that was a white man who, who, Burt Williams objected to a white man, G.H. Eliot, billing himself as the famous chocolate-covered coon. And Burt Williams' counter was that he was the real black artist. And, um, you know, how do you view somebody like Burt Williams, who was the first African-American superstar, who did legitimize African-Americans on Broadway, who opened the doors for generations of African-American musicians? I mean, I I think you could argue without Burt Williams, you have no Louis Armstrong as a pop figure. You have no Duke Ellington as an elder. Maybe Ellington because of the Scott Joplin thing, but you definitely don't have you know, Armstrong, you don't have the ink spots, you don't have Nat King Cole, you don't have Ray Charles, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you put Burt Williams in your line of, of is this something to be celebrated with a caveat or is this something to be studied but not really listened to? How do you categorize
0: Burt Williams in this? I, th- I think if you hear him, you celebrate him. Um, and then the examples I picked out in the book were, uh, I'm, I'd, I'd never come across him. I'd never heard of him even before I started started doing the research for this book, and I couldn't believe that there was this compelling, charismatic figure who was making all these records before the First World War, many of them. But um, he sounded as alive to me as the the the, uh, fifties rock and rollers did when I first heard those around those guys around nineteen seventy. Not only that, but you could you could clearly hear, as you say. his influence on later people. You can hear Chuck Berry in williams You can hear the coasters, all those great leader stola records that were made in the 50s. Um, it's in his phrasing. It's in... It's just the air of relaxation and humour, and he's somebody who um, inhabits his own skin with confidence and with charisma. And...
1: And dignity.
0: Yeah, exactly, which, which completely dispels... The, the all, all, all those awful cultural things that we've been talking about earlier, which was what, what he came out of.
1: And and I'm going to take the opportunity again to play uh, a song here. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to assume that your pick from a Burt Williams
0: recording to listen to would be Nobody. Uh, well, yes. Although having, having mentioned the, the, the coasters, to, to I have one, not
1: right? yet. I have not mentioned them. I mean, we've obviously talked about them on the shows with Ed Ward and others, yeah. but you, you do mention this the clear line of descent from Burt Williams' slide draw on He's a Cousin of Mine.
0: Yeah. To the so equally let's...
1: knowing narratives of the Coasters Vignette. So yeah. would you go with we could play both. You want to do nobody and a taste of He's a Cousin of Mine as well? Sure, yeah. All I'm right. So, up, so cue those up for us. <laughs>
2: I've never done nothing to
0: nobody. i ain't never gotten nothing from the stars in
2: no time. Oh, until I get
1: something
2: from the...
0: Like a (laughs) gun. He's a cousin of mine. Chef's cousin of mine. you liable to see him
1: most any old time. you just like a bee. You're all time buzzing. Ain't no harm just to hug and kiss your cousin. I haven't seen Jerry in the last ten years. and You know, that's a mighty long time. He's my mother's. And so that was the great Burt Williams. And and Peter, I have to agree with you. I think anybody who hears Burt Williams, sees uh, photographs of Burt Williams, reads about Burt Williams, if you can't hear the dignity and power and beauty of that music, I think you might be deaf. Um, So thanks very much for sharing that. And again, I had never uh, really, I had heard of Burt Williams, but never paid any attention to him before this book. So that's one of many uh, gifts. And I think anybody who reads Electric Shock uh, is going to find just a wealth of new music, new old music to hear about. But let's get back to sort of the cultural changes that are going on at the same time, because like you and Edward and others have pointed out, the music doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's a mix of technology and cultural shifts. And there's this panic when ragtime first becomes popular. And, and, and to our perspective, I mean, to me as a Gen Xer, I associate ragtime with a, a beloved old Robert Redford Paul Newman movie, uh, The Sting, like you mentioned on the previous episode. Um, and yet, critics, social critics at the time, were literally panicking about ragtime as if it was something truly dangerous like Elvis Presley or uh,
0: NWA it, exactly. and it's it's because as much as anything of of, of, of syncopation, um, it throws young people's bodies into unusual rhythms as far as uh, people who are raised on I, I don't know light opera and vaudeville were concerned. Uh, it encourages them to fling themselves around, maybe to indulge in close bodily contact with um, people of the opposite sex and this this sort of moral panic which partly comes out of race but more than anything comes out of the fear, fear of sexualizing young people is something that is repeated all the way through at least the next 50 years of popular music, right the way through to rock and roll um, and it was something I was really struck by when I was doing the research was that al- almost every new musical form particularly if they came out of black music as they arrived you would get the same the people in the same positions you would get church leaders you'd get politicians you'd get top educators school teachers or whatever and of course one's own parents saying this is the most immoral thing i have ever seen or heard and then within 5 or 10 years it would be um, just sort of sucked up into the culture and would lose all that um, power. And, okay, society's then ready for the next outbreak.
1: Yeah, and 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 literally the next generation will be saying, back in my day we had wonderful music like ragtime, but this swing stuff is just uh, uh, over the line. And, and it's, it's fascinating to see this repeated. But I do want to read this quote uh, you've got about ragtime from an 1898 American magazine called the etude. Uh, it determined that ragtime is a, quote, term applied to the peculiar, broken, rhythmic features of the popular Kuhn song. It has a powerfully stimulating effect, setting the nerves and muscles tingling with excitement. Its aesthetic effect is the same as that in the monotonous, recurring, rhythmic chant of barbarous races. I mean... Uh, And then it says, wraps up with, unfortunately, the words to which it is allied are usually decidedly vulgar. So its present great favor is somewhat to be deplored. So this music magazine, like, it hits all the buttons the sex, the fear of alien, what they call barbarous cultures. But they can't even bring themselves to fully deplore the music. Like, it had some kind of power that even the music snobs had to recognize.
0: Exactly, because before you got to the line about the barbarous races from the jungle or whatever it was um, It actually sounded like a public relations <laughs> puff piece on, on behalf of you know how exciting this ragtime music is um, So it, it was actually a, a, a lot more open-minded, broad-minded as a response to ragtime than most critics of the time would have been
1: and another change that was going on at the same time was the explosion of what we had what we called dance halls and and this again is something i hadn't thought about but before really before world war 1 and i think this was you know as a brit you're more focused on england than most american historians who tend to ignore our cousins on the other side of the atlantic um but suddenly, you know, dancing before World War One was something that happened very much in a controlled context. I mean, you imagine something like a dance scene out of a Jane Austen movie, you know, where a few families get together. They invite uh, their young people as a way of pairing off in a very controlled circumstance. They're dancing to very regular rhythms you know they're encouraged to dance with a variety of partners so that no particular physical chemistry heats up and suddenly after world war one for one thing there is a massive shortage of young men in england and you have all these women that are flocking to cities to work for the war effort and now they have to create a social milieu on the and suddenly the mores change completely, and people are literally going out and dancing with strangers—not just people, but re- quote-unquote respectable young woman, women. I mean, talk about that change and how big a deal it was at the time.
0: Well, it it, it was exemplified by the, the the plight of the people who came home from the trenches in World War One, who had left their wives and sweethearts as these. Very, very sweet, innocent, as far as they were concerned, um, re- refined young women, and came back to find them th- throwing gay abandon. You know, gyrating on dance floors to steps that the soldiers had never heard before. They didn't understand this music because what had happened during first what the First World War was that ragtime had changed into jazz, or jazz had emerged out of ragtime, um, whilst the World War, the First World War, was going on. Um, so as a, as a social change, that that was incredible. But, I mean, you you mentioned dance halls. I mean, all the way through, certainly I can only really talk from experience about England, but right the way up until the mid-60s, um, young couples automatically went out to dance halls. Doesn't matter what class they came from, whether they were very rich or very poor, but they went out as couples usually, or hoping to be in a couple, to, 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 to dances. Um so that, for example, is how my parents met in the 1950s. That would be the early 1950s. Um, it was it, it was the main focus, that and the cinema, for, for young people's lives. Um, and so that changes to an extent in the 60s. I mean, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. Um, but I, I would say once again these days, um, an awful lot of young people's social lives appears to me to involve going to clubs and so on where... Okay, all sorts of things are imbibed and taken in other ways, but fundamentally it comes down to dancing again. So that's been a, 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 a sort of continuum through the history, really.
1: And and here's one where again I want to sort of pull a Gen X rank. I mean, I'm slightly just barely younger than you. But like in my good old days, we had things called raves where you took harmless drugs like MDMA and you listen to things like the Happy Mondays and maybe you met somebody and maybe you didn't and had a wonderful time. And today it seems like from what I'm reading about on the Internet as an old man who's not participating, that the kids today are swipe swiping right on Tinder or Grindr or whatever the app of their choice is and that... I wonder if the music is bringing kids together sexually the way it used to.
0: Um, I'm not sure, but but I am sure about one thing, which is kids will find a way to get together sexually one way <laughs> or another.
1: It's true, although if you read some of the data, it seems that uh, they're not doing as much as they used to. But before, I only have a very short time left with you, and I want to talk about two artists that I think are critical. We already talked about, Burt Williams and George Washington Johnson and Enrico Caruso, which I wanted to cover. But there's one songwriter and one performer uh, from this uh, era of the teens that I want to cover, which is Irving Berlin, the author of everything from... Alexander's Ragtime Band, Through White Christmas, God Bless America, Let's Face the Music and Dance, Putting on the Ritz, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, et cetera, et cetera. And I already tried in the previous episode to make my argument that he was merely the Paul McCartney of his day, or rather that Paul McCartney is merely the Irving Berlin of his day and that he too may fade the way Irving Berlin did. But the second one is Al Jolson, who has fascinated me since I became aware of him because he's somebody who up until 19, from 1910 to 1950 was universally acknowledged as the king of entertainment in America and the UK. I mean, if you read an account, the Marx Brothers or Jack Benny or George Burns or any, you know, uh, uh, any contemporary of his, they all put Jolson on this untouchable pedestal. And yet, when we hear Jolson, or first off, when we see Jolson, we see blackface and assume that he's some sort of racist. And when we hear him, he's clearly coming from a pre. He hadn't, he did not learn how to sing to the microphone the way Bing Crosby or Louis Armstrong would just a generation later. He's singing to the back of the hall in a Broadway review. So I realize I'm putting you on the spot with like, two seconds to tell me about Irving Berlin and Al Jolson, but I just got to hear what you think about those two guys.
0: Well, with, with Al Jolson first, yes, exactly. I, um, as, as somebody who got into music at the end of the 60s, um, Al Jolson, if I knew him at all, was just a guy in blackface who was therefore very embarrassing. And it's only when you see film with him. And how I wish there was film with him back from his heyday, from, you know, from 1915 or 1920 or something. Because I, I think to actually see him Performing to an, a real audience then, rather than a film camera, would have been incredible. But um, we've already mentioned charisma with Burt Williams. Um, yes, Al Jolson is trying to sell himself to the back back row of every you know the biggest hall in the world, but he exudes passion. He exudes the joy of singing and the wholehearted you know giving every ounce of himself to every performance. Um, and I. I, I explain in the book how he, he was famous for singing the same songs in a different way every night, in the same way that in more, more recent years Bob Dylan would do or Van Morrison would do. And so his aficionados would go along and go, Oh, did you hear the way he sang Mammy tonight? What about that second verse? You know. Um, so well, the he, Grateful
1: Dead would be the definitive, yeah, I think,
0: example. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, so, so he was a natural born entertainer and a natural born improviser. And in terms of his historical status, it's a tragedy for him, but he, the tradition he chose to plant himself in was the, the tradition of the blacked-up minstrel singer. Because I think if he hadn't done that, um, which at the time wasn't seen in general terms as being insulting, if he hadn't done that, then I think it would be much easier for later generations to appreciate his genius. And, I, and I
1: go ahead, And I just want to cut in because I think there's some deep Sort of tragic ironies here of the American cultural experience in that Jolson, as a East European immigrant of Jewish faith to America, who grew up in Maryland, surrounded by African Americans. And this was part of the Jewish experience in america for for a great deal, the early part of the twentieth century, was that Jews were not seen as fully, quote unquote, white and were frequently marginalized in the same neighborhoods as other quote-unquote, undesirable minorities like the Irish or African-Americans. And so Jolson is a very organic American experience where he grew up just like Hank Williams would later or just like Elvis Presley would later or Bob Wills or any of these other figures of you know musical synthesis. He grew up amongst the African-Americans learning their music and sharing his music. And so when he took on the minstrel tradition, He's trying to be American and he's also trying to celebrate African-American culture. And I believe you talk about it in the book that African-American musicians at the time appreciated him very much as both a musical advocate and a literal ally, somebody who helped integrate hotels and stages.
0: Yeah, definitely very much so. And- um, in, in so many ways, almost everything you said about Al Jolson applies to Irving Berlin as well because he, he was born in Russia, he was a Russian Jew, so he would have suffered exactly the same kind of sort of cultural prejudice in his youth that Al Jolson suffered. Um, and he worked his way up from, as a, as a child, he, w- he was being hired to, to sit in the, in the stalls or in the circle of theatres and shout for encores of particular songs. He was he was being given money by the publishers to try and get people excited. And that he would be singing requests as a waiter in restaurants, and then eventually discovered he could write his own songs, only using the black keys of the piano, mind you, because he didn't know how to play properly. Uh, and he had a an unquenchable um, supply of amazing melodies, so many of which we we have inherited today, Um, and he transcended genre, he almost transcended race, and that his songs could be and were performed by black performers as well as white performers, and his reach, I mean, um, the fact that he was still writing songs in the 1960s, 1970s, having um, started before the First World War, I mean, it's just incredible.
1: And having hits all the way into the 1950s. So, yeah. you know, just an incredible run. And and I would argue, you know, if, if, if we were having this conversation in 1950, that Jolson and Irving Berlin would have status very much comparable to that of Stevie Wonder or Mick Jagger today, where they're just acknowledged as these cultural titans that everyone uh, grew up with and loves, et cetera, et cetera. So, Peter Doggett, thanks again for doing these two episodes. Hope I can have you back on again, because i swear we could talk about this this book uh for another 15 episodes it is a great book it's called electroshock from the gramophone to the iphone 125 years of pop music and uh, and thanks peter this has just been a delightful conversation
0: well it's, it's been great fun and i have a feeling i'll see you again
1: all right we we'll, right, we'll definitely take you up on it so uh that's it for this episode of let it roll and peter thanks again we'll see you next time
2: Thanks for listening. Next week, author David Wondrich is Nate's guest to discuss his overlooked classic, Stomp and Swerve, How American Music Got Hot, 1843-1924. to 1924. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Electric Shock recorded music from the gramophone to the iPhone is available from Random House and can be found wherever fine books are sold.